0: Psalm 129, a song of ascents. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed on my back, they made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous, He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be as the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. Neither let those who pass by them say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Okay, today we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 15, it's verses 1 through 18, and this is entitled, Discharging Discharges, part 1. So, Leviticus 15, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean, and this shall be his uncleanness in regard to his discharge. Whether his body runs with the discharge or his body is stopped up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed is unclean on which he who has a discharge lies, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. He who sits on anything which He who has the discharge set shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And he who touches the body of him who has the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. If he who has the discharge spits on him, who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Any saddle on which he who has the discharge rides shall be unclean Whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until evening. He who carries any of those things shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whomever the one who has a discharge touches and has not rinsed his hands in water, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. The vessel of earth that he who has the discharge touches shall be broken and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water." Verse 13, and when he who has a discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, wash his clothes and bathe his body in running water, then he shall be clean. On the eighth day he shall take for himself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and give them to the priest. Then the priest shall offer them. The one is a sin offering and the other is a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord because of his discharge. Verse 16 If any man has an emission of semen, then he shall wash all his body in water and be unclean until evening. And any garment and any leather on which there is semen, it shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. Also, when a woman lies with a man and there is an emission of semen, they shall bathe in water. And be unclean until evening. You've heard the verses read. I bet you're all excited to get into them, aren't you? (laughs) Discharges and emissions and, oh boy, the word for discharge has several meanings depending on the context. It can be a noun, as in the act of discharging someone from the hospital or from the military or even at work. Donald Trump is famous for that. As a noun, it can also be the action of discharging something like a liquid. Look out! The pressure in that wastewater tank might lead to an explosive discharge. If that ever happens, and I speak from experience, get ready for a long, long shower. It can be a verb where you take the action of expelling someone. I am discharging you from your job as chief operator of the wastewater plant. It can also be a verb, which means to allow something to flow out when it is confined. You allow to discharge to discharge. See, we're getting good at this. There are noun and verb discharges in today's verses. In the whole chapter, there are 24 total. Add in emissions, and there are 26 total. It's obviously something that is important to the Lord, or it wouldn't be in His Word. But as always, we need to contemplate why this is so. These things were told to those who are under the law, and lots of those people were in favor with the Lord. It doesn't apply to us now, and yet we know that we are loved of Christ. And as we know, the law only points to Christ, to his work, and to the fallen state of man in relation to that. If we just remember this, then it will all begin to make sense as we evaluate the verses. Our text verse today comes from a fee, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter five. There Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Paul implores us to walk in the spirit. The flesh is what is opposed to the spirit. And so he says to not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The word basar, or flesh, is used quite a few times in Leviticus 15. In the New King James Version, it is translated as body. Discharges from the body, or discharges from the flesh, are what we're looking at today. They result in a state of uncleanness. In order to remove the uncleanness, we need to end what the discharges are picturing. If that can happen, then we will be clean. In other words, we need to discharge the discharges. How, I ask, can we do that? The answer is found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Now, before we go on, I want to read you, because I skipped this today, I want to read you several uh, verses from the book of Hebrews which tell us that the law is done. It is over, it is annulled in Christ. And this is important that we remember to do this because if somebody clicks onto one of these sermons, they're going to need to uh, uh, understand because there's a lot of people that think we still are obligated to the laws of the uh, Mosaic Covenant. And so I'm going to take you very quickly to Hebrews chapter 7 where it says in verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. We were under the Aaronic priesthood, the people of Israel. Christ came, established the new covenant in his blood. There is a change in the law, meaning that the law is done. From verse 18 of the same chapter, he says, for on the one hand, there is an, an annulling of the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. The law of Moses, according to the book of Hebrews, is annulled. Then we get to chapter 8. In verse 13, it says, In that he says a new covenant, speaking of the new covenant in Christ, he is made the first obsolete. Obsolete means done. It is done. It is over. Okay? And finally, from Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 9, it says, He takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses, that he may establish the second. You can't have two covenants going at the same time. The first is taken away. The second is established. Adding on to that, Colossians 2, verse 14, where it says that Christ died, right, and that uh, the law died with him. It is nailed to the cross, okay? The symbolism is that Christ died on the cross. He is the embodiment or the fulfillment of the law. When he died, the law died with him, okay? So there's a couple of examples there, a million more in the Bible. We're going to see an implicit one right here in our verses today from Leviticus 15, an implicit reference to the ending of the law. Anyway, our first thought today is unnatural discharges. It's verses one through twelve. Verse one, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Like verse fourteen thirty-three, the address is once again made to both Moses and Aaron. What is ahead discusses defilement and ritual purification due to bodily discharges. It is a law coming from the Lord, and therefore it is given through the lawgiver, Moses. But it also deals with priestly purification, and so Aaron is addressed as well. As we continue to see, Moses and Aaron are jointly addressed at the giving of the laws which concern overall defilement. The chapter itself is going to be divided up first into defilement of men. This is going to go from verses 2 through 18, and next it will cover defilement found in women. That's from 19 through 30. After this, a final summary is made in verses 31 through 33, highlighting the reason for the contents of this chapter. Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, as we have seen on several important occasions, the Lord is speaking through Moses and Aaron, but his audience is specifically the children of Israel. What is being conveyed is not simply for the priests to have rolled up in a scroll and secreted away for times of need but it is to be regular instruction for the people of Israel at all times. It was to be as commonly held knowledge to them as driving on the right side of the road is for us today. That is, of course, unless you're in a country where they drive on the left side of the road, which would then be the right side of the road for you to drive on, even though it's the left side of the road. Verse 2 continues, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. As I said, the first section, which now begins in verse 2, is directed to uncleanness in men. The word for discharge is zuv. It indicates that which flows or gushes. It is the word first used in Exodus 3, verse 8, to describe the land of Canaan, which flows with milk and honey. The word for body is basar, or literally flesh. It speaks of the body itself. But it is also euphemistically used of the organ of generation, as when a male is circumcised in the foreskin of his flesh. It can also mean blood relations, such as when saying, you are my brother in the flesh. And again, it can be used to indicate man over against God in his fallen state, as in Sam walks in the flesh and not in the spirit. And finally, it can speak of all living creatures, as in all flesh is known to God. Both Testaments give these to some extent. Understanding these various connotations of the word will help us to understand what the Lord is showing us in this chapter. The term body, or flesh, in this chapter is used in a couple of ways. The first is that of the private parts of a person. The Greek translation of the Old Testament translates hazav or the discharge, believe it or not, as the gonorrhea. However, in some verses, such as in verse 16, It's probably speaking of the whole body. Because it speaks of the private parts concerning the discharge, some scholars immediately jump on it as resulting from the sin of illicit sex. However, this may or may not be the case. It could indicate that or any other type of discharge that a person gets, whether through illicit sex or simply catching an infection in some other way. However, for a New Testament picture, it indicates something which causes spiritual uncleanness. Verse 3, and this shall be his uncleanness in regard to his discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is stopped up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Here we have a word found only once in all of scripture. It is the verb roar or run. It actually means to drool. And so by implication, it is something which runs out of the body. The other word meaning stopped up is also new to scripture, it indicates to seal, as a king would seal a document. Thus, by implication, it indicates the discharge is stopped up. In either case, running discharge or one which is stopped up, the person is considered unclean. In type, both picture sins of the flesh. One is active, one is passive. The running discharge is a sin of the flesh that is seen and noticed by all. A person engaged in making porn films might be such a person. On the other hand, the stopped-up discharge would be a person who looks at pornography. One is outwardly evident, the other is inwardly so. This same concept can be seen in multiple types of sins of the flesh. In such, the person is defiled and unclean. Verse 4, every bed is unclean on which he who has the discharge lies, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. As we've seen elsewhere, defilement is not limited to people alone, but to the things a person comes in contact with. In this case, it extends to any bed upon which a person lies or anything on which he sits. The word everything here is a word which indicates a utensil. Thus, it extends to saddles, chairs, something is an improvised chair, a blanket, whatever else. The bed and the chair are both places one occupies. The bed is where one rests. The seating is where one engages in fellowship and discourse. The place that a person who is engaged in sins of the flesh lies or sits is considered as unclean because the person who occupies it is unclean. For a person to go to their place of rest or fellowship is then to indicate that they have accepted their unclean state in order to participate in it. As Paul says in Galatians, oh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. This is then pictured in the next verses. Verse 5, and whoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. This corresponds to the first half of verse 4. From the uncleanness which is bred from the infected person to the bed, their place of leisure, so the uncleanness transfers also to another person who would touch that infected article. In Numbers 5 verse 2, such a discharge was sufficient to put anyone so infected outside of the camp entirely, just as a person with leprosy was to be. Sin is an infectious disease, and it renders all who come in contact with it unclean. To be expelled from the camp means that one is out of fellowship with the congregation. As long as the sins of the flesh are running and evident in that person, they are to be treated as one entirely out of fellowship. For such a person in the church— Paul explains what their punishment is. He says right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He explains what that means in verse 13 of the same chapter. He says, Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. What we're seeing in Leviticus is actually typological of that which is happening in the New Testament church. A person has a sin of the flesh and we are to expel them, just as that person was expelled from the camp. For someone who is not running with such a sin of the flesh, but who comes in contact with them, they also become defiled through their contact. This is why we are told to not have fellowship with deeds of darkness, but we are to put on holiness like a garment and to keep ourselves from participating in these things. We are to separate ourselves from such evil. Verse 6, he who sits on anything on which he who has the discharge sat shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. This corresponds with the second half of verse 4. Like the bed of the first half, the same is true with anything which is sat on in the second. Anyone who sits on whatever the person with the discharge sits is likewise unclean. As I said, the place where one sits is their place of discourse and fellowship. For a person to hang around and fellowship with someone who is engaging in sin would then defile that person. During the time of his defilement, he is excluded from the benefits of the sanctuary. He has touched the place which is occupied by a person engaged in a discharge of the flesh, and he has acquired his defilement as well. Verse 7, and he who touches the body of him who has the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Here the same word is used which has already been seen before, asar or flesh. This may or may not be taken in the general sense of the word indicating the body or it may still be speaking euphemistically about the private parts in particular. The many uses of the word often make it necessary to deduce exactly what is being referred to. In this instance, it is probably touching the euphemistically noted part of the body, which renders another unclean, and requiring to go through the same rituals as other circumstances. This is going to be explained in greater detail in verse 13. For the Israelite, this verse doesn't give any exceptions at all, and so it would seem that even a priest or a physician who touched the unclean person would be defiled by the touch. To touch a person engaged in a spiritual discharge of the flesh is symbolic of actively participating in that sin with them. One could use as an example a person who is caught up in drugs. It is an open and running discharge in their life. A person in the church might slip and joined together with the drug addict. This would be comparable to what's seen here. He isn't a drug addict, but he touched or joined with the person who is an addict during a moment of weakness. This is what is seen in this verse. This could go with any such sin of the flesh. They have made themselves unclean by joining with the person who is actively engaged in such things. Verse 8, if he who has the discharge spits on him who is clean... Then he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Now is seen a verb used only here in scripture, rakak, it means to spit. From it comes the noun rook, which is the spit in one's mouth. That is used several times, including Isaiah 50, verse 6, which is a prophecy of Christ being spat on by others. Here's what it says there. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. That is then fulfilled in Jesus' words in the New Testament. Behold, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and scourge him, and spit on him, and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. Now, if you remember, we go back to that sermon where I talked about the uncleanness of a woman in childbirth. That means anybody who touches her when she is in her uncleanness is also unclean. That means that Christ was born in an unclean state. That's why they had circumcision on the eighth day, which is seven days after the uncleanness. Well, think of this. Christ died in an unclean state as well because the Gentiles spit on him. They are unclean naturally. And so Christ came into this world. The God of all creation came out of heaven and he united with human flesh. He was born in an unclean state. He died in an unclean state so that you Could be cleansed. If your hair isn't standing up right now, I don't know where your priorities are because mine is standing up all over my body, thinking of what Jesus Christ did for us. As Gentiles were considered unclean, this then would be considered a source of defilement, just as being spat upon by an unclean person would cause another person to be unclean. What is not explicit, but which could be assumed, is that this is speaking of both purposeful and accidental spitting. It is the spit which defiles the next person, regardless as to the intent of how it got on him. If we were to look for what this is picturing, it is that which proceeds out of the mouth, and thus it is unclean communication. It could be immoral, perverse, lewd, or vulgar speech. This defiles a person, but it also defiles those who hear it. In the end, just as evil company corrupts good habits... So evil communication corrupts good discourse and manners between men. Verse 9. And any saddle on which he who has the discharge rides shall be unclean. The Merkav, or saddle, is introduced here, and it will be seen three times. It comes from the word Rakav, which means to ride. And so it is more than just a saddle, but the seat of any conveyance. It is elsewhere translated as chariot and as a seat in a palanquin. The word then is also tied to Merkava or chariot, which is now today's modern tank, same word Merkava in Israel. Anything upon which an unclean person sat, which is intended for transportation, was likewise deemed unclean. Above, we saw where the place where one lays or sits is tied to their place of rest and their place of fellowship or discourse. The mode of conveyance would be a symbol of position. A rider on a donkey would be perceived as humble. A rider on a horse might be an officer. A rider on a white horse might be a general or even a king. One who sits in a chariot likewise signifies a certain position, as does one who rides in a planquin. A person who runs with sins of the flesh defiles such a position with their discharge of sin. This follows through to those who would touch what they have sat on. The position of doctrine, which is pictured here, is explained by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. He says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Verse 10, whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until evening. This corresponds to what occurred in the leprosy verses. For example, a person who went into a leprous house would be unclean until evening. But if someone lay down in that house, they would not only be unclean, but they would also have to wash their clothes. If someone touched the thing that was under such a person, they would be unclean. To actively touch is to participate in, but only in a limited way. A person may go to a church where the pastor is preaching a false message. They have touched or passively participated in that They have incurred defilement from it. Touching the thing defiled by a person with a discharge causes uncleanness until evening. But, verse 10 continues, He who carries any of those things shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. An additional requirement is levied upon anyone who carried such an unclean thing. They needed to wash their clothes, bathe, and remain unclean until evening. Here we can see that an incidental engagement with sin is treated differently than a purposeful one. One might be in a room where a TV is playing and the person on the TV is cursing. That would defile a person's mind even if they were not able to avoid that. But a person who sits down to watch a TV show with cursing requires a greater amount of cleansing to be purified from their defilement. As the seat of conveyance signifies a type of authority, it would be more suitable to the picture to go back to the church with the pastor with the false message. Someone who is actively supporting that, such as giving donations, helping out in the church, and so on, would incur a greater guilt than the one who simply came in and listened. This is what is seen right here. Verse 11. And whomever the one who has the discharge touches and has not rinsed his hands in water, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. There are actually two ways of interpreting this verse. The Hebrew is a bit ambiguous. Who is it that is to wash his hands? First, it could be that there is an unclean person because of a discharge. If he touches another person then that person would be defiled, right? It could be that it is acceptable, though, if he first washes his hands. In this case, no defilement is transferred. But if he touches someone else without having washed his hands, then the other person becomes unclean and must then wash his clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. This on the surface seems right. However, and secondly, it could be that the person who is touched by the unclean person immediately washes his hands and is thus symbolically purified if he doesn't do this then he needs to wash his clothes bathe in water and remain unclean until evening either way problems arise because only the hands are mentioned even if a different part of the body actually touched the other person and so either way the transfer of defilement is symbolic and because of this i would go with the second possibility If a defiled person touches a clean person, that clean person could wash his hands, symbolizing purification, and not be considered unclean. This is more likely in picture because washing one's hands elsewhere pictures innocence. The unclean person is already unclean, but the one he touches is not necessarily so. And so in order to proclaim their innocence and in an immediate rejection of the sin which has been thrust upon them, they wash their hands in acknowledgement of that. Three examples from scripture will show this symbolism. The first is from Deuteronomy chapter 21. If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him. Then your elders and judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not been pulled with the yoke. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel, and atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. A declaration of innocence is made, and it is accompanied by the elders, meaning the city's representatives, washing their hands over the dead substitute. We proclaim our innocence. A second example comes from Psalm 21. Here's what it says I will wash my hands in innocence. So I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. In the psalm, David clearly ties the washing of hands in with his innocence. He then says this allows him to go about the Lord's altar. This is something he could not have done if he were unclean until evening. And finally, the most notable occurrence of washing one's hands in all of scripture is recorded in Matthew chapter 27. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Remember those verses because we're going to see them in the next chapter in a very intimate way. As unlikely as it seems at first, It appears that the washing of hands is actually a symbolic proclamation of innocence by the one who has been touched, rather than being a preemptive washing by the one who has the discharge in order to touch others. In all of the verses we have so far seen, there is the implied warning to those who are in Christ that they are to abstain from close relations and conversations with those who are impure in life and impure in doctrine. Such defilement will certainly transfer from one to another, and none are immune from becoming defiled. Verse 12, the vessel of earth that he who has the discharge touches shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. Here we have two different vessels. The first is cheres or earthenware. It is that which is common, porous, and absorbent. It is from the earth, and it has never been alive. The second is etz, or wood. It is more valuable, considered non porous, and thus non absorbent. It was made from something with life in it. It is a picture of the two states of man. The first is an unregenerate person who has never been made spiritually alive. They absorb into themselves the unclean sin of another, they are reprobate, and they are to be destroyed. The other person is the one who is from that which is alive. Even if touched by a person who is unclean, they can be rinsed and cleansed. It is a picture of being penitent, being made alive in Christ, and being immersed through baptism. This is certainly what is seen here, or otherwise it would have mentioned vessels of copper and of brass and all these other things. But wood is used to make a picture for us. It would then stand as representative of any non-porous vessel for the Israelite. But the picture for us is maintained only by mentioning the wood. The practice is actually noted in the New Testament in Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and the scribes had designed an elaborate system of washings based on this passage right here. What they had missed was the spirit and intent of what the passage is conveying to us. Like earthen vessels, they were set for destruction because they failed to pay heed. I wash my hands in my innocence before you, O God. I do not know about this thing which has come about. I have been careful to walk circumspectly on this path I trod, and in this matter, I am guiltless, no doubt. But who can be pure in your eyes? Can such a thing be? In one matter, we are innocent, but in 10,000 others, guilty. Lord, how can we be freed from the guilt and be cleansed before you? Can such a thing ever come about? Surely you have prepared a way. It is certainly true. Of this, O God, there isn't a doubt. Lead us to the fount from where all cleansing does flow. Show us the way, and to there we shall go. Our second thought today is cleansing from discharges, is verses 13 through 15. Verse 13, and when he who has a discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing. For the cleansing of his discharge, a set period of seven days is given to confirm that the discharge has certainly ended. This is the set time for purification, where the person continues in their defilement, just as we have seen elsewhere. Verse 13 continues, washes clothes. The washing of the clothes, as we have seen several times, is symbolic of the outward reflection of the inward change in the person. The garments go from being defiled to purified. It is the purification which symbolizes the work of Christ in us. Verse 13 continues, and bathe his body. The words here say, and bathe his flesh. Six times so far, it says, and bathe. Now only it adds in the word, his flesh. For this reason, this is certainly referring to the euphemistic use of the word flesh, meaning his private parts. This seems more sure because in verse 16, it will add in the words, etchol, or all. That verse is then said in contrast to this, where only a part of the body is washed. Verse 13 continues, in running water. The Hebrews says, Bemaim Chaim, or in living water. The private parts of the person are where life issues from. The living water is a picture of Christ, as is specifically noted in John chapter 4 and John chapter 7. It is from Christ where the living waters come. And so a person who so washes himself is a symbolic picture of new life cleansed in Christ's living water. Though this isn't the kind of thing one would naturally teach openly in Sunday school, it is something that the Lord has placed into his word to show us the marvel of what happens to a person who is cleansed by Christ. Verse 13 continues, then he shall be clean. As we have seen in other passages, Everything in verses like this occurs simultaneously. We call on the Lord, we are made spotless, we are made spiritually alive, and we receive the living waters of eternal life. At that moment, we are considered justified, sanctified, and purified. We are clean. The same is true with what is pictured in the next two verses. Verse 14, on the eighth day, he shall take for himself two turtle doves or two young pigeons. On the eighth day, which in the Bible is the day of new beginnings, the healed soul is granted the right to come before the Lord into the sanctuary in order to receive final atonement. With him, he is to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. As we have seen, these birds picture Christ in their simplicity, purity, and humility. Further, the affection of the dove for its mate makes a splendid picture of Christ, who is so very affectionate for his people that he came to dwell among them and give himself for them in order to purify them. Verse 14 continues, and come before the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and give them to the priest. The door of the tent of meeting means the altar of burnt offering. It is that altar which symbolically allows access for the atoned sinner into the holy place. There at the altar, which is before or in the face of the Lord, the person is to give the birds to the priest. Verse 15, then the priest shall offer them the one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering. Both birds picture the work of Christ. One is as a sin offering for forgiveness of the sins of life. He found the life acceptable and therefore he then accepts his sin offering in our place. That is seen in several places in Scripture, such as in Hebrews 9, verse 28. The other is a burnt offering as a life wholly offered to God as an acceptable and sweet-smelling aroma to Him. That is seen in Ephesians 5, verse 2. Verse 15 continues, So the priest shall make atonement for Him before the Lord because of His discharge. The life of sin pictured by the discharge is atoned for and covered over. The penalty for that Life of sin is transferred to the innocent animal. In picture, the atonement and vicarious death are made by Christ on our behalf. Reconciliation has come. New life has begun. Cleansed. Cleansed from the defilement I bore. My garments are clean. Yes, radiant white. I have been purified, cleansed to the core by the merciful hand of the Lord. All is now right. The sin offering has been made. I am free from guilt. The whole burnt offering has been accepted as well. Christ's life was offered and his precious blood was spilt. I am saved and free, no longer condemned to hell. The Lord is gracious. He has done it all for us. He has freed us from our unclean discharge forevermore. All hail the glorious name of Christ Jesus, now eternally cleansed and eternally pure. Our third thought today is natural discharges. It's verses 16 through 18. A few things about verse 16 and those two to come after it. First, most commentators say that verse 16 is an involuntary emission. Nothing here says that. One commentator I read goes so far as to say this. He says, which through involuntary might arise from some lustful dream or imagination. But if it was voluntary and by a man's own procurement when awake... It was esteemed abominable and a degree of murder. That is a complete abuse of what is being relayed in Genesis chapter 38, which he cites. If you want to know what those verses are saying there in Genesis 38, go watch the sermon. The issue of whether this is voluntary or involuntary is completely irrelevant to what is being conveyed and why it is being said. Secondly, these verses are a part of the law of Moses, they are done. Done means done. What they pictured is now fulfilled. The last thing that Christianity needs is a whole bunch more neurotic people than we already have. Legalism has so many people in so many churches bound up in its claws that there is a heavy weight of guilt upon people's shoulders that simply does not need to be there. Understanding that, let's look at these verses with a view to understanding why this is being mentioned at all. Verse 16, if any man has an emission of semen, then he shall wash his body in water and be unclean until evening. In this verse, it mentions an emission of semen. The Shekava, or emission, has only been seen in one other account so far in the Bible, Exodus chapter 16. It was referring to the layer of dew, which evaporated and left behind the manna for the children of Israel. If you want to know what that is about, go watch the sermon. Now it is used to indicate a shekvat zara, or an emission of seed. If someone had one of these, it would render them unclean. They would remain in that state until the evening at the time of the new day. That terminology was very carefully explained in Leviticus 11 as pointing to the work of Christ. If you missed that sermon, or if you forgot this, go watch that sermon. On a day that ended at 6 p.m., it didn't matter if it happened at 8 p.m., and thus it would go on for 22 hours, or if it happened at 5.59, and thus last for one minute. If evening on that day was 6 p.m., the uncleanness ended. But why wouldn't a mission of semen render a person unclean? Before answering this, this is something that is known to exist in many religions. Ancient Egypt knew this. Islam practices it. Babylonians, Hindus, and others all knew this as well. Judaism obviously follows this precept if they adhere to the law. Other religions as well understand this defilement. It is something ingrained in the religious psyche, but it does not carry on to Christianity. Why? The answer is Christ. The seed of man is how sin travels to the next generations of humans, right? All people are born of man's seed and thus all inherit Adam's sin through the male. All of these other religions intuitively know that there is inherent sin, even if they don't understand why this is so. This is why circumcision was given to Abraham. In cutting the male member, it pictured cutting the transfer of sin in humanity. But it was only a picture, a picture of Christ. Christ came born of a woman, but with no human father. Thus he cut The line of sin, because no human seed from a father was transmitted to him. The picture is fulfilled. The requirement in the law is ended. The neuroses can end. We are cleansed when we come to Christ, pictured by the coming of the new day at the evening. For the law-abiding Israelite, he was told to wash all his body in water. This is in contrast to verse 14, which left off the word all showing that it was speaking of the private parts only there. After washing, he remained unclean until evening. As we saw before, this then is ceremonial defilement because of the conscience. Now in Christ, our consciences are to be cleansed. We are free from the consciousness of sin because we are freed from all sin through the work of Christ. Verse 17, and any garment and any leather on which there is semen, it shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. The Hebrew says, and all garments and all skin. The garments are representative of the external appearance of a person. As we saw just a few verses back, as are items of skin. As coverings, they were considered unclean until evening because of the transfer of the seed bearing Adam's sin. Jude understood this and was certainly thinking of this very verse when he wrote these words in Jude 22 and 23. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. In type, our coverings are cleansed and purified through the work of Christ, pictured by the evening or the start of the new day. Verse 18 finishes our verses today. And also, when a woman lies with a man, and there is an emission of semen, they shall bathe in water and be unclean until evening. This is a verse for neurotics, if not properly understood. First point, this was not the case at creation. Nothing is said about this in Genesis 1.28. All it says is, then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Further, nothing is said of this until this time in history. It is a precept of the law intending to look forward to Christ. Second point, which so many scholars seem to overlook, it is the emission of semen and not the act which led to it that is unclean. The act between the man and his wife, which it must be according to the Bible, in all dispensations and in all circumstances, is never considered either sinful nor to be abstained from, except when mandated by the Lord under the law, and for very specific reasons. The New Testament not only says that the law is done away with, but it further clarifies the truth that the uncleanness from the emission is no longer unclean as well. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 13. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The marriage bed is undefiled. No defilement results from the marriage bed. But the law says it does. Thus we have another implicit reference of the hundreds we've already had to the ending of the law. The man and wife of Israel who had sex resulting in an omission became unclean until sundown in order to teach them of their need for freedom from the law. Freedom from uncleanness and freedom from sin. As there were lots and lots of Israelites... There were lots and lots of folks who were unclean until evening. They obviously didn't mind the state of being unclean that much. It was a normal part of their daily lives. So much so that it was talked about openly. When King Saul was looking for a good time to kill David, a hint of this law right here is evident in the table that he sat at. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then David hid in the field. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on a seat, as at other times on a seat by the wall, and Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. It didn't matter what the reason he thought David was unclean. He simply thought it was so. It was a regular part of the life of an Israelite to be unclean and unable to interact with others at various times. These things had a purpose, and they have served their purpose very well if, if we learn what that purpose was. It was to lead us to the knowledge that the law could not save anyone, that it simply showed us how sinful sin really is, and it showed us that we need something else, something better. We need Christ. In him, all defilement is washed away. In him, all ills are healed. In him, there is complete restoration and full redemption. Nothing is lacking, and all is made right. When we read the law, we are looking at the life of Christ because he is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us run the race that is set before us with our eyes on jesus christ and if you've never called on him today or if you are unsure if you're saved or not i would ask that you would get that taken care of today we've got several people that are facing their demise in hospitals right now possible demise i should say they don't know if they'll be coming out or not and every single one of us could walk out of this door today get in our car and be killed we do not know the moment that we're going to die Or what would be even more tragic is if a 747 landing at Sarasota Airport happened to lose its power and crash into the church right now. Incinerate us all. We don't know. We hear about those things and we think, well, wasn't that odd? It happens. Those people that were killed weren't thinking anything until it happened. We need to be right with God now. And there's only one way to do that. There's only one way to be right with God, and that is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Only he can take away our sin guilt. And that is seen through every single sermon that we have done for hundreds of sermons in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and in the book of Jonah and in the book of Ruth. We keep seeing the same theme again and again. Man needs to be redeemed. Only man can redeem man and only a perfect man can do it. And there's only one perfect man. It is the one born without sin. And believe it or not, it's pictured in these last three verses of the day in the transmission of semen. He was not born in that way. The line was cut. He was born of God the Father and of a woman. So he's fully God and he is fully man. And only he can stretch out his hand between the two and make the bridge back again. Please call on Jesus Christ today. Receive him. Receive what he has done and you will be saved. All the Bible says is when you believe, if it becomes a heart knowledge instead of just a mental knowledge that Christ died and rose again, when you believe that, The Bible says that you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is a deposit, is a guarantee of our future redemption. Nothing can stop it. If God gives a guarantee, it is the surest thing on the planet. Please call on Jesus. Believe in your heart that God has done these things to show us Jesus and that he did them through Jesus. Be reconciled to God. I have a closing verse for you today from 2 Corinthians chapter seven. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Next week is Leviticus 15. It's verses 19 through 33. Some more discharge verses to get through. It's entitled Discharging Discharges Part Two. Part Two. That'll be our 26th Leviticus sermon. And I'll tell you this I say it every week. The Lord has you exactly where He wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? One more thing before we take the Lord's Supper. That's our poem of the day entitled Discharging Discharges. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, These are the words to them he was relaying. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. This is how it shall be. And this shall be his uncleanness in regard to his discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge, as I address, or his body is stopped up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed is unclean, on which he who has the discharge lies, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean, as to you I apprise. And whoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water, as I say, and be unclean until evening, at the turn of the new day. He who sits on anything, on which he who has the discharge sat, shall wash his clothes and bathe in water, and be unclean until evening, yes, because of that. And he who touches the body of him who has the discharge shall, as I say, wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until the evening time of day. If he who has the discharge spits on him who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water too and be unclean until evening, such as I am instructing you. Any saddle on which he who has a discharge rides shall be unclean and nothing else besides Whoever touches anything that was under him, as I say, shall be unclean until evening, the turning of the day. He who carries any of those things shall wash his clothes and bathe in water as well, and be unclean until evening, as to you I now clearly tell. And whomever the one who has a discharge touches and has not rinsed his hands in water, as you know, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Certainly it shall be so. The vessel of earth that he who has the discharge touches, this is not good. It shall be broken, and shall be rinsed in water every vessel of wood. And when he who has a discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself for his cleansing seven days, wash his clothes and bathe in running water, then he shall be clean. He has entered a clean phase. On the eighth day he shall take for himself two turtle doves or two young pigeons, so he shall obey. And come before the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and give them to the priest, as to you I now say. Then the priest shall offer them. The one is a sin offering, and the other is a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, because of his discharge, this his proffering. If any man has an omission of semen, then he shall wash in water all his body. And shall be unclean until evening, so it shall certainly be. And any garment and any leather on which there is semen evident, it shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening, until the day is spent. Also, when a woman lies with a man, and there is an emission of semen such as seen, they shall bathe in water and until evening be unclean. Lord God... It is we who have been unclean. It is we who had walked away from you. Our sins defiled us. Only stained garments were seen. Our iniquities were stained through and through. But in your amazing love and in your magnificent mercy, you made a way for us to be brought back to you. Through the blood of Christ ended the great controversy. We have been reconciled wonderful things you did do hallelujah to christ our lord hallelujah to the purifier of our souls for each person cleansed by his precious blood who have been recorded there in heaven's rolls we praise you our matchless king we praise you now and for all of our days to you forever will the saints break forth and sing and to you O god we give all of our praise hallelujah and amen heavenly father we thank you for these verses which Explain to us what is going on in redemptive history, how uncleanness and sin travels from one person to another and how to correct it. And so help us to follow through with that by calling on Christ to being cleansed and help us to keep away from immoral discourse and uh, vulgar things. Help us to stay away from people who are sinning and yet to love them enough to tell them about how to get out of their sin. And Lord, the lesson is in your word today. If there is sin in this church and if it arises, Help us to be strong enough to expel it from the church so that we don't turn into a church like so many others which have turned away from you and accepted things which should not be accepted into their congregations. Help us in this, Lord, and help anybody that is in a church that is facing this to be strong and to stand on your word above all else, to stand on your word and be honoring of what Christ did and to be honoring of what he expects of us. Help us in this, O God. We pray to you for this strength, and we pray for it because we know that we need it in our times of weakness, and so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.